scripture. It's from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to this time in our service of great consequence where we hear your word and you search our hearts by it and call us into greater conformity to the image of your Son. Father, I pray that you would give us, as your holy and beloved children, ears to hear, hearts to respond, and lives that we present to you as living sacrifices, ready to be renewed more and more into the image of your Son. Father, I pray that you would purify me as the messenger of this word, that you would anoint me by the Spirit, that the words that I preach are faithful and true, that they are your words through me. And Father, we pray all of this to the glory of your name through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our march through Colossians, continuing our, our trek through Colossians chapter 3, which we have talked about being uh, having a different emphasis than the first two chapters. first two chapters dealt with getting our, our beliefs right about who Jesus is, recognizing that Jesus is enough uh, to save us, our, our theology. And then uh, chapters 3 and 4 uh, remind us that Jesus is enough for living a holy and pleasing life, for living out the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul has been working with a metaphor uh, over the last uh, paragraph, and it continues into this paragraph. And you'll notice it with the words uh, put off and put on. He has this idea of as, as we have been saved by Christ, if we, as we have been regenerated, made a new creation in him, that the task of the Christian life is, is fundamentally like ripping off Dirty clothes, ruined clothes, ugly clothes, and robing ourselves in the clothes of Christ so that we uh, are, are presented in, in, in the splendor of, of Christ to the world. We spent several weeks on the p- pulling off of, of things like idolatry and pulling off things like malice in our hearts. As I think about this metaphor, it, it reminded me of... Um, humorous experience that I had with my wife when we were engaged. She uh, had a coupon for a local department store to get a whole bunch of dresses at, you know, uh, discount prices. And she asked me 
uh, if I would like to go with her to the department store for her to pick out some dresses. And you can imagine, I was very interested in the idea of my wife going to the department store and trying on a bunch of dresses, you know, I had in my mind, she'll, she'll get these dresses, she'll go into the, into the changing room, and then she'll come out, and I'll be like, oh, that's nice, and then we'll just do that a couple times. Uh, it could be, you know, a real highlight. Well, she went through down all the aisles, and she found some dresses she liked. She found a pretty red one. She found, you know, kind of a gown one. She found one with sparkles, and I'm like, this is going to be a great day. She, <laughs> she went uh, into the changing room, and so there I am in the department store, a man by himself standing in the dress section, uh, a hard thing to bear, but there's a reward here, right? I'm going to see all of these dresses put on. Minutes turn into dozens of minutes, and then finally about a half an hour goes by, and Becky comes out of the changing room wearing the exact same clothes that she went in with, and all of the dresses on her arm saying, I'm finished. I'm like, what? (laughs) She tried them all on in the changing room. She found the ones that she liked, and I still don't know how many of those dresses I ever actually uh, got to see, but I was, you know... Uh, so excited to see these, these dresses on Becky, and they were never put on for me to see in that moment. So I was left with, ah, oh, darn. Well, here's, here's uh, to, to transition that into something more holy. You and Christ have been given the beautiful garments of love and righteousness. And Paul says to us, Put them on, because they are what we are to wear in this world to show the world that we are his. And so today's text is a call for us to put on love, to wear the new clothes of the gospel, to be seen in this world as Christ's, primarily because... We present Christ's love through our lives. Paul is very interested in our putting on love. You could summarize the putting off passages as putting off self-love because he tells us to put off covetousness, which is idolatry. That's love of self. Put off maliciousness and slander. That's, That's love of self by putting other people down. And he is calling us now that that is put off to put on what belongs to you, to put on the love of Christ. The Christian's life of living out the gospel, Paul says, is living out love that the world sees, that the world can see Christ through in you. We have to recognize that everybody in the world loves love. There isn't a single person that would come to a sermon and say, well, you know, I'm just really anti-love. But the fact of the matter is that the Christian is the only person that is capable of and that actually does truly love the way God made us to love. Because it is only in the gospel that the fundamental heart change that we must experience to be able to love happens. You see, apart from the gospel, the heart has a mirror in it. And as nasty and as sinful as we may actually be, 
that mirror just loves to stare at itself, loves to look at itself. Luther says that the, the definition of sin is that our lives are curved in upon ourselves. Outside of Christ, we love self, and everything else is, an end, is a means to, to that end. But in the gospel, in the gospel, we are able to rip that mirror up and let our love go out and become selfless to become self-giving. And when that happens, the world sees a love in us that is supernatural, that is otherworldly, that they pay attention to. And it makes Christ beautiful in this world. So as we go through this text today, I'm going to look at four ways we show we are Christians by our love, a love that the world sees. And so my question for you is, as we get into this passage, have you put on love? As you go through this world, as you live amongst your friends, are you showing the otherworldly love of Christ, the new garments of Christ's love to the world? Or have you conformed yourself or shrunk yourself back into the worldly way of love which is primarily self-interest. Let us look at these four ways that we show we are Christians by our love. We're going to see that Christian love is first from love. That second, Christian love is self-giving. Third, that Christian love is forgiving. And fourth, that Christian love is binding. Each of these Send a message of whose we are into the world. Let us look first at Christian love is from love. Christian love is from love. Look at verse 12 again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I want to focus on that phrase, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those words are really the power that funds our ability to love like no one else in the world. What those words tell us is that as Christians, we love because we have been perfectly loved. That's what this all requires. For us to love not ourselves, but to love selflessly, we must experience and claim a love that flows into us that is so perfect. We don't need to spend time propping ourselves up with self-love. I remember when uh, we had our first child on the way. And we had this baby book that that Becky and I were working through. And one of the things that it asked uh, me to do and Becky to do was to write a letter before the child was born to let them know who we were. And I remember writing that letter and, and saying, I want you to know that I have loved you from before you were born. I have loved you. Before you knew me. 
My love comes before you and my love will not go away. I wanted my children to know that they were born in love and out of love. And that is a diminished picture of what Paul wants us to grasp in these words, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's love is so much greater than the most loving earthly father or mother's letter to their child. How much more? Let us look at this passage piece by piece. We are going to see in the words, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that in the gospel we are loved perfectly. I want us to see three particular aspects of God's love that is on display in these words. First, that God's love for us is unconditional. Second, that God's love for us is without beginning. And third, that God's love for us is affectionate. Let us look at those in turn. God's love for us is unconditional. This comes from that word chosen. Paul says you are God's chosen ones. In Greek, the word is eklektoi, which is the word for election. God's chosen ones could just as well be translated God's elect. Now, it is unfortunate that the words chosen and the words elect have become a bit polarized in the church. They become threatening to some, some of us because it, it has a, 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 an edge of unfairness to it. But we have to start here. It's in the Bible. It's a biblical word, and it's not a biblical word of infrequency. We come across God's choosing, God's election, God's predestining over and over again. We cannot preach the biblical gospel without touching and dealing with what it means that God has elected us. And what does it fundamentally mean? It means to the nth degree the same thing that my letter to my unborn son meant. That like a father, God has determined to love his children unconditionally, perfectly, without end and without beginning. He has determined that he is going to love this child who you are, regardless of how good or bad you are. It is unconditional. It is not a love that says, if you measure up, if you're cute enough, if you delight me enough. It is a love that says, I love you, not because of who you are, not because of what you will become, not because of how you will perform, but because I am love. And I have chosen to put my love upon you. The reason I love has nothing about you that makes it a determination. It is because I love you. This is brought out quite explicitly in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 and 12. 
We are told by Paul there that when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The story that Paul is referencing there is in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. We have been told the promise uh, was going to come through the children of Abraham, and the ch- promise was going to come through the, the chosen one, Isaac. And then Isaac marries Rebekah, and they end up conceiving twins, two children in the womb. Two children conceived at the exact same time, conceived in the exact same moment. Absolutely nothing within those two uh, unborn children to distinguish them. And the question is, which one will get the line of promise? And how will the line of promise be determined? God answered that question to Rebecca before the children were born, before they had done anything, before they had proven whether they were good or bad. God said it will be Jacob. And why? Because God, by his election, chose Jacob not on any conditions in Jacob, not in any demerits in Esau. He chose Jacob because it is his sovereign love that made the determination that the promise would go through Jacob. It sounds unfair. I know uh, for many the the idea of, well, if, if I don't have anything to do with this, that this is so unfair. How, 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 do I, how do I control God's election if God's election is completely unconditional and doesn't have anything to do with whether I'm a good person? That just completely ruins it. But now what are we looking at? What are we talking about when we ask the question, how can I get God to do what I want? How, how can I use my goodness and my choices? How can, I, how can I use that? We are leaving the most beautiful thing of the gospel, which is that the gospel is by grace alone. Why is it by grace alone? Because no one can earn it. No one can deserve it. Every single one of us, if God were simply to look at our hearts and evaluate whether we were worthy, would be declared unanimously, universally unworthy. All fall short of the glory of God, for all have sinned. And so when we recognize this this election, we are recognizing that God's love is synonymous with grace. We are loved because God is gracious. As Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You see, we are at 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 an irreconcilable situation 
If we are saved because there is merit in us that God says, okay, I'm going to work with that, then we are not truly confessing we are saved by grace alone. We are saved by grace because we are chosen by God. No one can earn God's love. God's love is simply received, and that makes it thoroughly unconditional. But second, God's love for us is without beginning. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world is when God's love for you began. Before anything was created, before anything happened, God's love was already upon you. When we speak of God's love, we are talking about an always and forever love. It has no beginning and it has no ending. And if it has no beginning and it has no ending, then we have nothing within our power to lose it. God loves you by his own unconditional determination then your love, that his love for you is not something that can be taken away by something you did. Third, God's love is affectionate. He says that you are chosen, holy and beloved. Holy means that you've been set apart. You have been made his treasured possession. It means that his love has made us his. To understand that statement is profound. It means that he has loved us and through his love brought us to him. It is a powerful message of the extent of God's salvation. He has made us his own by sending us his son, by giving his son on the cross to purchase us from all unrighteousness. And he calls us beloved. Beloved. It's the same word that Paul uses of a husband's love for his wife in Colossians 3.19. God's love is affectionate. As affectionate as the best husband is to his wife. God's love for us is unconditional, without beginning, and without affectionate, with, and affectionate. So that begs the question, how do you know? How do you know if this, if this verse applies to you? Well, Paul answers that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see what Paul says there. You can know that you are chosen. You can know that God's love for you is unconditional without beginning and truly affectionate. If when the gospel has come to you, if you have listened to it, if you have said yes I believe in that gospel. I put my faith in that gospel. I trust in that gospel. 
I make Jesus my Lord and Savior. If you have responded to the gospel with repentance, with desire, with love for God, if you have been convicted of sin and desire to be obedient, then you know that that love that that Paul speaks of is the love that God has for you. This love that I've been describing is not excluding you. It's being offered to you now. And it's being assured to you that if you receive the gospel, this is the love that you have. You have that love. Do you want this love? If you feel like you are perhaps not experiencing it, do you want this love? Call out. Ask God, save me, have mercy upon me. That is the promise. Respond to the gospel and you will have God and you will know his unconditional, never beginning and never ending and always affectionate love for you. The result of this is that you are holy and beloved Those in the gospel, those living in and living out the good news are holy and beloved to God. That is your identity. That is the most fundamental, truest thing about you. I am holy and beloved by God. God looks at me and he loves me. There's nothing I can do to lose his love. There's nothing I can do to fall away from him. I am holy and beloved because he has placed his love upon me. He has filled my heart with the gospel. When you have that kind of love flowing and coursing into you, do you need to spend time loving on yourself? You are filled with God's unending love. And when that takes hold of your heart, when you are gripped by that, it will change you. You will become a creature of God's unconditional love. My grandma rescued a, a pound animal, a, a dog, um, and we named her Penny because she was a lucky penny. She was just a stray dog. She was a, 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 a whimpery, terrified, skittish dog that would wet the floor whenever you called her name because she was so used to being beaten. She was a mess of a dog, psychologically traumatized. But my grandma took that dog in and just loved that dog. Loved that dog unconditionally. Loved that dog without end. Affectionately nurtured that dog, cared for that dog. And the love that my grandma poured into that dog changed that dog. That dog became a sweet, secure, pleasing little dog that was her very best friend. Now, if that is what my grandma can can do by pouring her love into a, a, a little animal, what can God do when you receive all of his love into you. 
You become a new creation, a creature defined by unconditional love. You don't go into the world asking, am I loved? Am I secure? You stop at the knowledge that God is your Father who has called you holy and beloved. And you face the entire world with the security of a love that can never end. You go from self-centered to selfless. That is what John, uh, John means in his first epistle when he says, we love because he first loved us. The beginning of putting on love is to grasp the indefinable, unmeasurable, unending love of God for you. And once that has detonated in your heart, there's no longer room for selfishness. There is only new and powerful selflessness. So that you move to to the second demonstration, the second way that we show we are Christians by our love, which is that Christian love is self-giving. Self-giving. It may be different on the board there, or other-centered, but self-giving. Paul says in verse 12, the full verse, put on then... Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice all of those terms are other-centered. They all are outward. They're all about the other's issues. Having put off idolatry and hatred, we now put on these characteristics. Namely, we are defined by compassionate hearts. The Greek there is, is splagnon, and the only reason I bring that up is because I've talked about splagnon before, but that's your guts. That's this deep, uh, down, inside seat of emotion. It's the, it's the pump that makes you feel things strongly. Your guts are filled with compassion and kindness. You see need and you, you go after it with tenderness and with a desire to be a help. You are ruled by a compassionate heart. And what is significant about that is that is the same guts of Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, when, when Jesus sees the crowd of Israelites who were like sheep without a shepherd. His guts were so filled with compassion and a desire to show mercy and help to them that he fed the 5,000, that he taught them all day. Paul is saying that your love, when it has been grounded in God's love, takes on the heart of Christ. You have guts of compassion. And second, you have humble minds. Paul uses three terms to stress the humility of our minds when they are are completely submitted and, and, and turned over to God's love. Your minds are humble. You have humility and meekness, which is to say 
Christian love doesn't puff us up. We don't come home from the soup kitchen saying, I'm a little bit better than my neighbors today. That's not, that's not what happens. Nor is Christian love that is self-giving restricted by self-importance. We never come to a task that is beneath us. We never come to something that is too degrading for us to do it. Why? Because we can't be degraded. We are filled with God's never-ending love. And so if we have to wash the floor or wash the toilet, our self-importance doesn't say that's someone else's job. There is no restriction of self-importance. We are humble. We are meek. And then we're patient. Goodness, I wish that one wasn't in the list. (laughs) Patience means that that's not just a flash in the pan. Everybody can say, you know, I've, I've done some dirty work. Everybody can say, I've been humble. Everybody can say for a moment or two, I've, I've been controlled by compassion and kindness. But the word patience says it's resolved, it's ongoing, it's renewed, it's day by day sticking to a person who is just so slow and so incorrigible towards my kindness. Can't I move on from this person? Serenity now, right? Patience is the same word for long-suffering. The, 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 the image of patience is your driver's ed instructor. How does he do it? How does he get himself in a car that could kill him hour after hour with a kid who doesn't know what he's doing because he's patient and he is committed not to to bring down coals and fire over every mistake, but to love that person until they know what they're doing and they respond to these instructions. Patience is refusing to give up, refusing to condemn to set ourselves on their best, no matter how much time it takes, to renew that repeatedly. Christian love is self-giving, showing a humble mind, because it's the mind of Christ. That is what we show when we show a humble mind Listen to this passage in John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, compassionate, he loved them to the end, patient. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, I mean, what humility is that? Rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Meekness. It goes on, Jesus in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is the mind of Christ. And when we put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, we are putting on the example of Christ. And the world watches. Self-giving love reflects Christ's love for us. John chapter 13 verse 35 really concludes the whole account by saying these words from Jesus, by this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Will they know we are Christians by our kindness? Will they know we are Christians by our meekness. Even greater, number three, Christian love is forgiving. Christian love is forgiving. Forgiveness is hard. It is painful. It is unnatural. It is costly. Jesus tells us that when we are forgiving, we are forgiving debts. And that's a great understanding of what forgiveness involves. Because if you have a $500 debt that somebody owes you, and you forgive that debt, you lose $500. It costs the debt to forgive. Because in forgiveness, you are saying, I no longer expect you to pay this. I will incur the the, the cost all on my own. I don't deserve it. It's clearly your fault. (laughs) But it's all on my ledger now. Because it is forgiven. That is forgiveness of a financial sort. But forgiveness of a broken heart. Forgiveness of betrayal. Forgiveness of not being there. Those have great costs. And to say I forgive is to eat the cost to incur the injury on yourself so that the relationship can be put back together. It is so unnatural. It is not worldly to forgive in this way. 
But it is because of this that forgiveness shows perhaps more than anything else to this world that we are Christians. Look again at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Remember the forgiveness that we are told was given to us in the gospel, chapter 2 of of Colossians, verses 13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The reason that forgiveness is so definitional to a Christian's love is because the love that God has given us is the love that paid the cost of your sin through the cross of His Son. And so, we recognize as Christians that we have been forgiven much. The only thing that we can do in gratitude to being forgiven much is to be those who forgive much. How well do you understand your debt? How well do you understand the cross was for you? That will tell me immediately how much you understand forgiveness and your willingness to forgive because you will never forgive a debt to a brother or sister that is greater than the debt God forgave you to make him to make you his own that is the point of of Jesus's parable in Matthew 18 that speaks of this king who had a servant with a billion dollar debt and the servant comes please forgive me I, I, I can't pay this back and the, sir, and the master says, I forgive all that billion-dollar debt. It's gone. And then that servant goes out, and he, he has a servant of his own who comes to him with a $50 debt and says, pay your debt. And the servant says, I can't. Please have mercy on me. And the servant says, you will pay everything you have. And Jesus responds at the end of that parable, providing the point for all of us. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is saying that if you are unforgiving it is probably because you have not received the forgiveness of the gospel. Because if you have received the forgiveness, then the natural thing, the the required thing, the non-optional thing is to be forgiving as Christ was forgiving to you. If we are Christians, we are forgiving. Will they know we are Christians by a love that forgives as Christ forgives? Finally, Christian love is binding. 
the New American Standard, as we take verse 14, uh, again, let's read it so we have it. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I, I believe that the New American Standard has a little preferable translation in calling uh, this love the perfect bond of unity. What we recognize in Christian love is that love is a bond. And the Christian understanding love is a bond. It's the perfect bond. It's not Velcro. It's not tape. It is the perfect bond. It is, it is welded with rivets. It is not a breakable bond. It is the perfect bond. And it is so different from the way the world loves. The world loves with contracts. I'll do this for you if you'll do this with me or for me. Or, or with consensuality, which is to say, as long as we both agree, let's go forward with this. Christian love is covenantal. It says, in Christ, I commit to love you through good and bad. Christian love is binding. It is steadfast. It is reliable. The, most, the, the pinnacle phrase for Christian love is what the groom says to the bride and the bride says to the groom at the wedding. Reading the vows, they say simply, I do. And there is no higher earthly term for love than I do. I have committed myself, sickness and poorness, uh, happiness and unhappiness, good days and bad days, to love you. And that is what Paul is describing here. Christian love is the, is the statement, I'm here for you. You can count on me. It is unity that comes through our being connected to Christ necessarily joins us to one another. Are we known for a binding love to one another? Are we known for a binding love to one another? Or do we treat our relationships in the church with laxness, with aloofness, with being temporary, with being plain and simply worldly. I'm here as long as it serves me or suits me or makes me happy. Beloved, our bond to each other witnesses to Christ's bond to us, which is given to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul runs out of ways to tell us there is nothing that will break Christ's bond to us because there is nothing. Will they know, will the world know we are Christian by a love that binds us and unites us? Beloved, Christ has purchased us new clothes. They are beautiful. 
that are unlike anything in the world. He has given us clothes that make his face delight in us, and they shine his glory to the world. They must not be hidden. Let Christ see you in them. Beloved, put on love. Clothe yourselves with Christ's love so that you love from love, that you love that is self-giving, that you love that is forgiving, that you love in a way that is binding. Put on love that the world may know whose you are and praise his name. Amen.